0: Welcome to the Truth and Democracy Podcast. My name is Rich Procida. I'm the founder of the Truth and Democracy Coalition and the host of the Truth and Democracy Podcast. Today, we have Minister Bert Newton. But before we begin, I want to tell you a little about the Truth and Democracy Coalition and about our upcoming events. The Truth and Democracy Coalition was formed to build a pro democracy movement in America. We educate the public about disinformation, teach people to be critical of the propaganda they consume, and provide critical analysis of current events and social issues. We produce media and educational materials, hold seminars and meetings, work with other organizations, and organize events and activities geared toward building a pro-democracy movement in America. The coalition seeks to build communities of people of different faiths and ideologies to defend and promote democracy locally, nationally, and globally. On Sunday, May 21, 2023, at noon, we welcome Harvard-educated American moral philosopher, cultural commentator, and essayist, Susan Neiman, Dr. Neiman has written extensively on the juncture between Enlightenment moral philosophy, metaphysics, and politics, both for scholarly audiences and the general public. She describes herself as a lifelong leftist and socialist, and is an unlikely critic of wokeism. She argues that the tenets of the woke have become anti-theoretical to the traditional values of the left. And I want to read you a couple statements about her book. Philip Kirchner of Columbia University writes, Susan Neiman's powerful new book calls out to everyone who hopes to advance the cause of justice for all. She envisions a progressive movement drawing from the full range of the human family from people of all classes, ethnic backgrounds, and sexual identities. She urges them to renew the values articulated by Enlightenment thinkers, not to confine human beings by ancestry or biology, not to settle for merely replacing one regime of power with another, not to abandon the hope of genuine human progress. When those values are discarded, she argues, we acquiesce to important losses. In her characteristically lucid and accessible prose, she exhorts all of us to aspire to more. And Thomas Chatterton Williams of Bard College and contributing writer to The Atlantic writes, Susan Neiman is one of our most careful and principled thinkers on the genuine left. In this nuisance and impassioned plea for universalism, she has done a public service for readers of every political stripe. If an alliance of conservatives, liberals, and progressives is to succeed in fending off an increasingly undemocratic far-right, lucid thinking is our only hope. Left Is Not Woke is an urgent and powerful intervention into one of the most pressing struggles of our time. So to register for our interview with Susan Neiman, go to tinyurl.com leftnotwoke. That's tinyurl.com leftnotwoke. Then on June 4th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, we will start our monthly Red Pill Men's Group. Men are dying. They are killing themselves with drugs and alcohol and committing suicide at far higher rates than women. They also make up the perpetrators of violence and mass shooters are mostly young men. They are turning to authoritarianism and make up a large portion of far-right extremists and MAGA activists. What's wrong with men? New studies show that implicit bias is strongest against men. Men are more the subjects of implicit bias than people of color or the poor. Men have become the public enemy number one in our society. They are viewed as dogs and trash among other things. The saying, women need a man like a fish needs a bicycle, has become popular among women who no longer need financial support from men. Studies show that women are happier being single and no longer want to love and take care of a man. All of this has had a profound effect on men. Pining for a past when they had more authority, men are turning to drugs, alcohol, suicide, and authoritarianism. To register for this nonpartisan men's support group, go to tinyurl.com/redpillmen. That's tinyurl.com/redpillmen. Then on June eleventh, two thousand twenty-three, at two p.m., Rich Proceda—that's me, by the way—an early pro-feminist activist, the author of *Social Issues in Global Perspective* pornography, and the leader of the Truth and Democracy Coalition will lead a discussion about what's wrong with men and what to do about it. A survivor of severe sexual abuse, he will tell his story, address the problems facing men today, and talk about what needs to happen to move men back from the brink and back to sanity. To register, go to tinyurl.com slash wrong with men that's tinyurl.com slash wrong with men
1: I'm back after a three-week hiatus. I wasn't idle during that time. I was doing research and starting to write out some new episodes. I also didn't want to interfere with the latter part of Lent with episodes about non-Lenten passages, because that's where I am in my series here. I'm not anywhere near Lent. My goal is that next year I will be on track with the Lenten parts of Matthew during Lent. Uh, They won't be lectionary texts, of course, but hopefully if I can work it out and time it right, I will be covering the final chapters of Matthew during Lent. Anyway, I came across a meme circulating on social media recently that shows Jesus feeding the crowds, or he's supposed to be feeding the crowds, but instead of quoting from any gospel texts that tell any of the stories of the feedings, the creator of the meme wrote an alternate narrative to drive home a point. The meme reads, And then Jesus drug-tested everyone before deciding if the lazy, freeloading masses were worthy of receiving fish and bread. And then it quotes Jesus saying, I can't feed these people. It will destroy their incentive to better themselves. You get the point. I think that simple meme, through comically presenting the opposite of what happens in the passages about the feedings, gets at the heart of what the passage that we're looking at in this episode is about. Nevertheless, I think it's worth understanding the symbolism in the story as the original audience might have heard it. In the last episode, we saw Jesus encounter a Canaanite woman. Canaanites being the quintessential historic Gentile enemy. He encounters this Canaanite woman who becomes the hero of the story. Her persistence and wit brings reconciliation and relationship with this Jewish Messiah. She asks for a healing for her daughter, and the banter between her and Jesus is about food. She makes the argument that Gentiles should also get some of the bread that Jesus is handing out, if only the crumbs that fall from the table. Jesus concedes the debate and heals her daughter. This healing and talk of food signals what comes next. Right after this encounter, Jesus heals and feeds a Gentile crowd. This Canaanite woman plays a role in this story that opens up a whole new dimension of liberation. Liberation and Deliverance for the Gentile Peasants. This is not the first time that Jesus has encountered Gentiles. Jesus did heal a centurion's servant or son, the Greek word is ambiguous, in chapter 8, but he was in Jewish territory. And then when he did try to venture into Gentile territory, the region of the gatherings, where he liberated two men from a legion of demons... The people asked him to leave, and so he did. He went back to Jewish Galilee. But now, after encountering this woman and conceding a debate for the first time in the story, he finally finds an opening, or is dragged into it, depending on how you interpret that passage, to expand his work among the Gentile peasantry. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 39 of Bible Study. Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin by reading the verses about healing Matthew fifteen, twenty nine to thirty one. After Jesus left that place, he passed along the Sea of Galilee, and he went up the mountain where he sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he cured them, so that the crowd was amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised God of Israel. So Jesus has just come from the region of Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory, and walks along the sea, which, as I've explained in previous episodes, reminds the audience of the imperial context. It is the imperial sea that Jesus tamed when he rebuked the winds and the waves. It is the imperial sea that Jesus has subdued under his feet. When he walked on it. Now he seems to be in a border region between Israelite and Gentile territory. He goes up a mountain and sits down. We might blip right over that part. Sitting down doesn't signify much to us, it's kind of passive inactivity to us. Sitting on a mountain is perhaps picturesque, but nothing more. Yet this image of sitting on a mountain. Would have been pregnant with meaning for the original audience. The image of sitting down on a mountain recalls his sitting down on a mountain in chapter 5, just as he was about to expound on the law for the new society. And both this image of Jesus on a mountain here in chapter 15 and the one of Jesus on a mountain in chapter 5 both recall Moses on Mount Sinai, where he received the law for the new nation or new society of Israel. This image of sitting down with crowds coming to him is also a royal and a wisdom image. In the ancient world, kings would sit to rule, to make decisions, issue decrees, and teachers would sit to teach. So that's four dimensions of the meaning of this image of sitting on a mountain. This scene of Jesus sitting on a mountain recalls the earlier scene of him sitting on a mountain in chapter 5 to expound on the law for the new society. It recalls Moses receiving the law for the new Israelite society on Mount Sinai, and it evokes wisdom and royal themes. Jesus is a teacher and a king. The people bring the sick to him and he heals them. As I've explained in previous episodes, these images of healing in the gospel recall the images of liberation from the prophets. The prophets used images of healing to describe liberation from foreign empires, and this passage in Matthew really emphasizes this image. Isaiah 35, 5-6, speaking of the liberation from the Babylonian Empire, proclaims, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. You can hear this passage reflected by our Matthew text when it reads, The crowd was amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And then the narrator tells us that the people praised the God of Israel. This further underscores that the crowd here is a Gentile crowd. Otherwise, the narrator would have merely said that they praised God and would not have to specify that it is Israel's God. So the image here is of Gentiles, the nations, which is what Gentiles means, the people of nations outside of Israel the people of other ethnic groups. The nations are streaming up to Jesus, who sits as a king and a teacher of the law, and they are healed. An image from the prophets of liberation from empire. These Gentile peasants are also under the occupation of Rome. This image of the nations streaming up a mountain to a lawgiver in Israel also comes From the prophets, Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4 have famous passages very similar to each other that depict the nations streaming up a mountain of Israel's God to hear the law, the result being the cessation of war and the healing of the nations. Here is the passage from Micah. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So this is the image. Jesus fulfilling the prophetic texts of liberation and healing for the nations. And next he feeds them. Let's read verses 32 to 39. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in the desert to feed so great a crowd? Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. Then ordering the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and after giving thanks he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all of them ate and were filled and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Those who had eaten were 4,000 men besides women and children. After sending the crowds away, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. For the second time, Jesus feeds the crowds or facilitates a feeding of the crowds through sharing with a lot of leftovers. There are two ways that these passages of the feedings of the crowds tend to be interpreted. The first way, the most traditional way, to understand them is that Jesus is performing a miracle, multiplying fish and bread, and the performing of a miracle is the main point. A second, more modern and Western way of understanding these feeding passages is to say that there is no supernatural miracle occurring. But rather, that by sharing the food, Jesus prompts the crowds to start sharing food as well. This interpretation asserts that the original audience would have understood that the people in the crowd have all brought food with them, hidden in bags that they carry. But they are not going to share it until they see Jesus sharing, and then they follow his example and find that they actually have more than enough for everyone if they just pool their resources and share. It is a miracle of sharing, but not supernatural. The use of the word miracle in this interpretation is a metaphor. Now, I don't like using the word miracle for anything in the ancient world. This is something that I have covered in previous episodes. I think it's better to use the term a work of power. The concept of miracle, the way we understand it today, would not have been in the minds of ancient people, but they would have understood that some people have amazing special powers. This would not have been seen as miraculous to them. Rather, it was just the way things were. So I think these feedings would have been understood by the original ancient audience as both a work of power by Jesus and a demonstration of sharing. Initiated by Jesus that spreads among the crowds. I doubt that the narrator wants us to think that the peasants actually have food with them that they begin sharing too. There's no real evidence of that. But it is clear that they continue sharing the food that Jesus has shared with them. They share the food that Jesus gives them, which is originally shared by the peasant disciples of Jesus. So I think that, as in the previous feeding of the 5,000, plus women and children, The image here is of an economy of sharing among the peasants rather than relying on the food distributions by wealthy patrons of the empire who have accumulated their wealth by robbing these same peasants through rent, debt, and taxes, something that I have covered several times in prior episodes, including in episode 35 about the first mass feeding. Through a work of power, what in modern times we call a miracle, Jesus takes the very small amount of food shared by his peasant disciples and shares it with the crowd who continue to share it with each other until everyone is fed and there are seven baskets left over. The abundance of food, like the abundance of crop produce in the parable of the sower, recalls the images from the prophets and Israel's apocalyptic literature of the abundance of food in the messianic days of liberation. In episode 32 on the parable of the sower, I cited Second Baruch, a Jewish apocalyptic work roughly contemporary with Matthew that envisions the messianic days of liberation from the Roman Empire and the establishment of a new society. To help the reader imagine this new society, the author of 2nd Baruch paints this intensely powerful image of the abundance of food. In chapter 29, verses 5 and 6, the text proclaims, The earth also shall yield its fruit ten thousand fold. And on each vine there shall be a thousand branches. And each branch shall produce a thousand clusters. And each cluster produce a thousand grapes. And each grape Produce a core of wine, and those who have hungered shall rejoice. We might easily imagine the hungry that Jesus feeds in this passage rejoicing. And since this feeding is on a mountain, another likely background text for this passage is Isaiah twenty-five six, which declares, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, a feast of rich food. This feeding is for all people, the Gentiles, the nations. Which brings us to the numbers. Many commentators have noted that the first feeding in chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, uses Jewish numbers or numbers symbolizing Israel. Whereas this feeding, the feeding of the 4,000 plus women and children, uses Gentile numbers or numbers symbolizing the nations or the world. Numbers are never just numbers in ancient texts. They are mentioned for a reason. And as we have seen, the first feeding happens in Jewish or Israelite territory, whereas Jesus seems to be engaging Gentiles in this feeding of the 4,000 plus women and children. So, the numbers go like this. In the first feeding in Jewish territory, the five in 5,000 and the five in fish that are shared with the crowd may symbolize the five books of Torah. The twelve baskets may represent the twelve tribes of Israel. So, five for the five books of Torah and twelve for the twelve tribes of Israel. In the feeding of the 4,000 plus women and children, among the Gentiles, the numbers seem to represent the world through creation. The four and four thousand may recall the four rivers in the Garden of Eden, or perhaps the four corners of the earth, an expression used elsewhere in ancient Israelite and early Christian literature to describe the whole world. Isaiah 11:12 and Revelation 7, 1, if you want to look it up. The seven loaves that are shared and the seven baskets left over may recall the seven days of the creation of the world. Whatever is going on with the numbers, we have two feedings, one in Jewish territory and one that is in the border area of Jewish and Gentile territory and seems to be a gathering in of the Gentile peasantry. As in the prophetic texts, the people stream up to the lawgiver and teacher who heals and feeds them, and again Jesus is contrasted with the leaders of the people who have abandoned and abused the people back at the end of chapter nine, The narrator told us that Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. One of the texts that the narrator had in mind for this was likely ezekiel thirty four 2-6, to six, which reads, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, you shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings. But you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost but with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and scattered they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains, and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with no one to search or seek for them. In contrast, we have seen Jesus feed and heal the lost of Israel. Now he gathers the lost of the Gentiles, who also suffer under the same Roman occupation. He gathers them on a mountain. People also harassed and helpless, sick and hungry, without a shepherd. And Jesus heals and feeds them too. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please share this podcast with your friends and your enemies and everyone in between. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you can do that. That draws people to us. This has been episode 39 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.